Welcome to Nemesine, the podcast of the Institute for Research on Women, hosted by Andrea Zerpa and Amina Cuberte. The IRW is an interdisciplinary scholarly hub for feminist research since the 1970s, part of the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Nemesine is the Greek goddess of storytelling and as an archetype represents the importance of oral histories. On this podcast, we center conversations about feminist work and research across disciplines through the ancient oral tradition of storytelling. Today on the podcast, we're interviewing Smriti Balakanan. She is a PhD candidate in the Department of Childhood Studies at Rutgers University Camden and was an IRW fellow in the 2020 to 2021 Knowing Bodies Seminar. She has an integrated MA in English Studies from the Indian Institute of Technology Madras, Smruthi is interested in observing the experience of being a child in post-colonial situations, studying language, culture, and ability in these contexts. She is curious about the gap between schools and the communities they serve in terms of their aspirations for the child. At 17 years old, you moved out of your suburban home in India in the pursuit of poetry. Can you tell us about that time in your life and how you have grown as a feminist poet and writer since? Thank you for that question. And it's quite thoughtful of you to research about my background in this context. So just a bit of clarification, the suburban is connoted in the Indian context, more as semi-urban or uh, urbanizing. So it's a more fluid category and unlike the idea of suburb in the United States, access as someone in a, in a well-off urban situation would have. But I went to an English medium school there and that was a privilege. In a landscape dominated by sort of objective, rational uh, learning as education, poetry was a space to feel. It was a space, uh, it was a place where emotions, connotations and interpretations had their place. So writing poetry was um, actually aspirational for me. Um, it was an affordable art form in terms of the materials it required. You could write on the margins of, of your notebooks. I devoured any book that I could get my hands on and understand at that point, um, both Tamil and English. Tamil is the language I speak at home and is the predominant language in Tamil Nadu, the state I grew up in. Um, I very often carried around a tattered Oxford hand dictionary and later on a thesaurus to make sense of the things that I was reading. And during higher secondary school, I got access to uh, a little bit of dialogue internet, thanks to my sister. And that was an explosion. I read for the first time South Indian women writing in English about complexities of relationships, gender and sexuality. Uh, they resisted translating Tamil, Malayalam, or Kannada words, even when they were writing English. They spoke of trees and food that I have seen, touched, and smelled. They made me feel their emotional landscapes, and I did not have to go to the dictionary this time. It was, it was thrilling. I wanted to be able to evoke that in a reader, and I thought an education in literature would help me do that, in particular in this case, English literature. In this pursuit, I went to university to complete a five-year uh, five integrated master's in humanities and social sciences and majored in English studies. Um, during this period, I was engaging with feminist and post-colonial theory. And what 
this education did was to complicate, it helped complicate my desire to write and publish uh, and that to write and publish in English. So thereon, I saw the politics, uh, the power dynamics of both my English education, but also the idea of doing art or literature. Um, so the different histories of privilege, marginalization, and aspiration that kind of converged in my earlier attempts to become a poet. So that would be my early journey, I think. Thank you so much for um, walking us through the complexities of your writing. In 2011, you published a poetry book titled Wind Sketching with the Writer's Workshop India. The book's description says the reader is struck by the simplicity of your expression, your assimilation and analysis of experiences, and sensitive attention to detail. What inspired this poetry book? Thank you for that question, Amina. So I don't think there was a singular inspiration as much as a lot of aspiration, actually. So it was a lot of aspiration. Uh, writing poetry in English meant expressing a sense of intimate connection with the language and the gamut of connotations and expressions it could codify. That was my sort of what that uh, aspiration contained. I think I also enjoyed the playfulness the medium afforded, especially when it came to, came to rules of grammar. I could do a lot of things. A few words could take up a lot of page space. It was freeing to allow myself and the emotions to take up space when I wasn't feeling the same physically and conversationally. You know, the silence of the print medium. So the silence of the medium was something that struck me. I enjoyed that. Um, there was no accent. I did not have to commit to an accent. People read it in, in whatever way they wanted. So while people placed and read, it, this was a context where people placed and read your social location, your class, caste, age, through your English uh, and, and uh, through the way you spoke language, right? At least I, I thought at that point that, print and writing did have accent. Now I, I, I feel differently. So I, I, this was also a space where I grew up with a lot of songs and, and oral traditions. And these, these modalities dwelt a lot on the medium, right? So they dwelt on the sound of it, the rhyme, alliteration. And they built a lot of soundscapes for art. I was excited to think of poetry not just as sound, but as, as image, as print. I guess I was sort of like all enamored by modernist thought at that point, but that was exciting. And uh, through this medium, I was able to dwell on the boundary wall between what can and cannot be said in written language. I guess it was both medium and content. I think I enjoyed that and I think I still do. In the past, you've said that having worked as a teacher and a translator, you feel strongly about some problems in the way languages are thought in schools today and are pushing for a rethink in the way primary and secondary education work. Can you discuss this further? So when I said that in the past, I was speaking primarily about the Indian and even particularly the context in Tamil Nadu that I was encountered. So I worked in the field of language education, particularly in English as second language in a space where children's life worlds outside of the school was vastly multilingual. And many of the people's primary la language was not English in the schools that I visited. Apart from ESL teaching, I trained as a remedial educator for children with specific learning differences and worked on inclusive classroom pedagogies 
and also worked on uh, monitoring education policy implementation and research around it. So what I saw in the Tamil Nadu context was a highly class differentiated schooling system. There were significant gaps between the conceptual ideals of uh, sort of a learner-centered education and the variety of ways in which it was implemented in different classrooms uh, that I was encountering. So I was thinking at that point about barriers teachers faced in taking ownership of the language teaching material and also about the exclusion of different kinds of learners within classrooms. So looking back though, I realized that there were many people thinking along the same lines. And again, this was a phase in a long history of rethinking education and its politics. And I think this continues to the day. Um, again, um, observing that also a key part of the journey for me was to understand the politics of schooling itself and how it manifests in children's everyday life and its complexities. Now reading and communicating with scholars of education through graduate school has given me a much more complex opinion of language education in schooling and schooling as a structural entity in itself. Medium of instruction as a political site of aspiration, just as it was for me growing up, right? As I mentioned earlier, I also see the structural issues and complexities in scaling up or standardizing a methodology in education. So some structural and political questions that I was asking myself then was also what took me to graduate school, I feel. So who is learning? For what ends are they learning? Who evaluates and for what ends again? What are the power dynamics involved? Most importantly, why do some people, in this case, young people, choose to participate uh, in school even when they disagree with or are uncomfortable with certain styles of schooling or certain classroom practices. So encountering childhood studies research, that's the field, interdisciplinary field that I'm a part of, especially of scholars writing about various contexts in the global south was another significant phase transition of expanding my praxis and my understanding on uh, schooling, relationality, and a lot of dimensions of it. So graduate research has allowed me to pay attention to young people's critical negotiations, agency. All of this they do while inhabiting the institutions. They don't necessarily always rebel or resist. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, they don't always necessarily refuse. So um, you had earlier asked about my growth as a feminist writer. I think responding, looking back to that, I think the urge to historicize to seek complexity and to listen more carefully to situated critical perspectives and power dynamics and issues. That would be a direction that I have certainly, also from the chronological back and forth in this description, I think uh, you probably gleaned that it was not like a linear growth, but sort of a, an organic, loopy, expansive kind of a growth. I just got so many flashbacks of the different schools that I been to because I used to live um, overseas in the United Arab Emirates uh, for five mm -hmm. years. So I was going to like a private school for a while. And a lot of the things that was against the rules there was so strange to me. And then coming back to America and then experiencing like different types of like rules was insane. Like grow growing up, I wasn't allowed to wear lipstick in school. And I used to always do it or um, like, your hair had to be tied up. You like walking in the hallway, if a teacher saw your hair wasn't tied up, in addition to the uniform. And I would always um, wear pink lipstick, just like walking around the hallway, like just go like 
put it on and it wasn't so much about like what I looked like it was more the fact that people telling me you couldn't wear that it was so like it was it just got me so mad my physics teacher would just like stand in front of the door every single day before class and be like you're not coming into this room until you wipe that off and it was just it just enraged me but then coming back to America and experiencing in like just North Jersey and um, experiencing like dress codes was um, like a different type of weird. Uh, your dissertation is titled Clean Bodies in School, School Children's Experiences of Health, Hygiene and Sanitation Discourses in Tamil Nadu, India. Can you discuss the cultures of cleanliness in schools? Thank you for that question and, and sharing your experience, Amina, because um, I think the cultures of cleanliness I've been um, thinking about also includes regulations like the ones that you described around school uniforms and, and how they need to uh, be present in the space of the school. Um, so schools um, in general have a long, varied colonial and post-colonial histories. So one recurrent underlying theme in the project of schooling um, is that schools are sites that seek to socialize children into modern ideas of cleanliness, um, modern in quotes in this case. Um, the assumption is that once children are uh, subjectivated or invested with in ideas of uh, cleanliness and health, they will carry the project forward to the future generations. So cleanliness uh, as say hygiene and sanitation um, is also seen as necessary for survival. So uh, the survival of the, of the community, uh, the children, the state's futurity in some sense um, hinges on, uh, on, on, on the children's health uh, as secured by hygiene and sanitation in these discourses. So this has a long history of uh, embodied regulations in many different cultures and contexts secular colonial context, post-colonial context, and, and uh, many different parts of the world. And again, what comes as health, hygiene, and cleanliness, and how it is performed in each of these contexts, as you have very, um, you've illustrated, uh, it varies. So resources such as water, space, and waste management that are available influence um, how the body gets managed as a clean body the products that are available in the market like soaps, attire, and, and accessories um, that are embedded in regional practices um, of getting a body clean influence um, how cleanliness is practiced. So this history also um, entangles with contemporary developmental efforts um, around water hygiene uh, and sanitation, right? So um, what I am interested is to observe how children inhabit and negotiate their participation in many of these discourses and cultures of cleanliness that they encounter. So um, I work with um, adolescent children in peri-urban areas or, um, and semi-urban areas in northern part of Tamil Nadu, uh, which is a southern state in India. Um, they inhabit uh, many identities. The children I work with inhabit many identities that are considered transitional or at the boundary of um, for instance, being a child and an adult or rural and urban. So many of the children in their communities look at the schools as a route to social class mobility. So in this context, um, cleanliness takes specific cultural forms. 
it could be management of bodily fluids it could be um, regulation of um, sexuality and caste identities in school um, it could be um, an adherence to a classed and heteronormative uh, idea of gender and it could be uh, ethical practices around uh, environmental cleanliness etc so um, it it takes a lot of uh, forms cleanliness then becomes a sort of a fluid cultural artifact that children negotiate with in school and it also um, varies between schools that um, that i write about um, based on their educational philosophy political identity and class identity so one thing that that i um, that central to my research is that i center young people's critical negotiations in rendering themselves clean across different uh, relational mediations in the school the different networks so some questions that um, that i am interested in are how do the young people negotiate and inhabit these discourses on an everyday basis how do they present themselves as clean bodies in school so that goes to the title of my uh, thesis um so uh, these are just the questions the detail of the stories is often where the complexities unravel during the research and in my writing the children push me and hold me accountable to the feminist impetus of my research and its uh, storytelling dimension i feel thank you so much for your response where do you hope to take your research next and what topics do you want to explore so uh, a lot of thread from my current research exceed the scope of my current phd thesis and one of the reasons is is, is the complexity and the many layers uh, of the of the topic and also the pandemic that happened as i have been doing archival and field research i went into the field with questions regarding children's responses to cleanliness discourses i would say that a lot of things about the title of my research and the questions have changed shape in subtle and explicit ways in response to the children's narratives of their experiences so in different schools they were uh, calibrating and situating me before sharing stories or letting me participate in their peer groups right i am a woman a tamil speaking person who seemed to understand some of the implicit codes of the school and was able to navigate the culture but also someone who came from the us which was uh, this far away place which they encounter a lot in media so uh, in my ethnography and writing i've been uh, seeking to be sensitive to the various power differentials and my positionality constantly drawing inspiration and support from feminist scholarship on these concerns also the benefit of working with uh, a doctoral advisor and a committee who themselves have engaged in grounded feminist research is that they appreciate the fluidity of a project and my emotional entanglements with it so when i whenever i think of my research as a bounded project it has a life of its own and it's it's a journeying somewhere next rather than thinking about it as a specific topics i feel like there are stories that emerge in my field site that take a life of their own and it's the children who push the research as the, as i work with them or the participants who push the direction of my research as i work with them so i think i'm learning and negotiating with the question of who owns an experience this is with much gratitude to the feminist scholars and scholars of childhood who have problematized boys and agency within research so for instance first the logistics of my current research right 
when we work with people who are considered minors we need to seek consent from the parents or the guardian and assent from the child due to the nature of my research i also had to seek consent from the school and sometimes teachers or cleaning staff i heard in the very process of explaining my research interest and seeking consent a whole gamut of stories and perspectives different people had varied claims to that issue to complicate it further i am researching relationalities of which children are a part so um these relational networks come in different shapes and forms the stories and uh, experiential narratives they share often felt like an ill fit within the frameworks of individual or institutional consent also the children help remind me over and over about my own research and work and life as situated in relational and interdependent networks that far exceed what i am able to capture in my writing i guess one always builds on other people's ecosystems and work and in a nonlinear uh, fashion of growth i would think i usually take a large newsprint size paper for each of the students i'm working with to conduct workshops with children um the paper was sort of a canvas for students uh, or and children to illustrate or find map uh, responses to my prompt one of the children in the school catering to low income uh, families remarked paper avanga kaasu marathla velaidha ka ivlo paper vechittu enna seivinga appuram so uh, she was asking that the money to buy paper grow and trees for what will we do with all this paper later so she mirrored my methodology and research pursued back to me as embedded in an institutional world view that could afford to set aside time effort and money in talking to children about their perspectives and experiences so um, the idea of longevity of research data and material use for the purpose did not fit uh, her world view of economic living so um, i keep going back to my notes about this particular incident also because it brings to surface my own complicated relationship with research and my positionality in it, in it. so um i think i i am also thinking with the specific incident uh, a lot more at the moment because um covid-19 pandemic um had limited access to different field sites and archives that were all in the plan it's it's almost like all the context that i've worked with are seeing significant shifts and changes and the digital modality has entered young people's lives in an unprecedented way opening up channels of communication participation in community while limiting others so um i'm sorry this is a circuitous way of describing what's happening but these events have been calling me and a lot of academics to rethink our fields research and our relationship to it and i think i am still in that process of churning and um, maybe in a little bit i may have a more clear response to that question can you talk a little bit about how perhaps like poetry is a way for you to express your emotions and like maybe how research fits into expressing your emotions as well we've talked to a few researchers now and a consistent theme is that research is kind of separate from emotions and it's really interesting and um gratifying to hear you talk about like research in a way that directly relates to your emotions that's an important question i've been grappling with also because emotions as affect as being affected and also affecting so in the sense um, emotions are are embodied experience are central to my research project 
and i find that in relation to ideas uh, ideas of cleanliness a lot of the the experience of being in school is related to how one feels at so many levels it's not just about how one feels as a as a mental state of being but a, a complete embodied state of experiencing things like shame when we question about one's uh, state of cleanliness or or attempts to um, cover up or seek privacy within school so it would be uh, artificial for me to separate my emotional participation in both my research site but also in its entanglement with my investment in doing that project i think the idea of poetry as something that helps me relate to people basically transferred over to research in this case i would think i recently realized that i've been obsessing a lot over food feeding and cooking as a, a sort of feminist theory politics ritual and healing so food for me is a way of knowing my place and keeping rhythm it reminds me of how i am connected to and part of a multi species rhythm right so all this because i think cooking has kept me grounded while i write my thesis and uh, this week and it, it this keeps changing of course this week i want to make finger millet kanji which is a form of uh, porridge made of finger millet and this is a dish my grandmother fed me and my siblings every day when we got back from school until we rebelled one day something i regret because she stopped after that what's an indian dish that you recommend for us to try uh, i would recommend you try idiyappam this dish is also called string hopper it is a steamed rice dish that you can pair with a lot of different kinds of sides depending on your mood it's not just an indian dish it's actually a south asian dish that i would recommend you try Thank you for joining us in this episode of Nemesine. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at RWRutgers.